And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Paul Sieslak, Medical Director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Programs. Dr. Sieslak earned his medical degree from The Ohio State University, did internal medicine residency at Washington University in Seattle, and then went on to do fellowship in infectious disease. Um, sorry, other way around. University of Washington in Seattle and WashU for fellowship in St. Louis. Um, Dr. Sieslak came to Oregon in 1994, uh, 1992, originally with the Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer for the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, and he has stayed here and served in several roles, um, including to direct the State Public Health Division's Communicable Disease Epidemiology Section in Oregon's Emerging Infection Program, and then served on the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And since uh, July of 2014, he has been in his medical director role. We are tremendously grateful uh, for Dr. Sieslik's leadership uh, particularly over these past challenging years, uh, and we invite him to share uh, his data and insights today. Thank you, Dr. Sieslak. Uh, thank you, and good morning, everybody, and it is very nice to see uh, actual people in the audience. Um, today, I'm just going to go over uh, COVID-19 uh, various aspects of it, and then uh, finish up with some of the epidemiology of uh, other diseases, if you've been wondering what, what has been happening to the other reportable diseases in the state. So, um, as you all know, there are certain diseases that are reportable in the state of Oregon, and those uh, reports are typically investigated by our local public health authorities, and uh, they send the data up to the uh, state public health division. And so, primarily what we do is to track the communicable diseases around the state, uh, make recommendations uh, regarding how people can protect themselves from communicable diseases, investigate outbreaks when they occur. So most of this talk is, is going to be focused on um, our communicable disease data. So they always like us to have objectives for these talks. Uh, so here's mine. Uh, state the proportion of Oregon's population that has been reported with COVID-19 to date. State the age group with the highest incidence of reported COVID-19 in Oregon. State the proportion of Oregon's population that has received a booster dose of COVID-19 vaccine. State the proportion of Oregon's population estimated to remain susceptible to COVID-19 as of March 6th, and uh, name the category of diseases that saw the biggest drops during 2020 and 2021 during the time of the pandemic. So this is uh, an epidemic curve. An epidemic curve has uh, time on the x-axis and case counts on the y-axis, and uh, we have color-coded uh, hospitalized cases, non-hospitalized cases, and cases with unknown hospitalization status. Um, now, uh, we, we feel pretty good about our hospitalization data, mostly because uh, it's required to be reported, and we have relationships with the hospitals around the state uh, regarding this uh, hospital reporting. Uh, you'll see that a large proportion of cases, we say unknown hospitalization status, which really means they haven't been reported to us as hospitalized, and we haven't contacted the patient to, to ask them whether they were hospitalized uh, because uh, you'll see at the end of the graph there uh, during the Omicron surge, uh, they just basically outran our capacity for, for interviewing all of those uh, tens of thousands of cases. 
but the hospitalized cases are shown in the blue boxes at the very uh, or blue columns at the very bottom and and uh, as you can see they they make up uh, a small percentage of uh, all the cases in Oregon uh, and then here's the non-hospitalized and the hospitalized uh, and the unknown and you can see the various waves of uh, uh, variants that swept through the state and more on that in the next graph but the totals um, for the pandemic just get them out there right up front uh, almost 700,000 cases reported to us uh, to date um, that's about 16% of Oregon's population, so nearly one in six Oregonians uh, has been reported to us, and probably many more have been uh, infected but didn't get tested, were asymptomatic, uh, and um, but nevertheless uh, have been through the infection. Uh, 27,759 uh, cases hospitalized, or 4% of um, of all uh, cases that have been reported to date, and that represents about one out of every 154 Oregonians have been um, hospitalized with it. 6,709 deaths, uh, that's rounds to 1% of all the cases reported to us have, have uh, died in association with um, COVID-19, uh, and that's about one out of every 636 Oregonians. So um, this, these color-coded bars uh, show you the, the different variants that have kind of come through. Now, uh, uh, on the left end of the graph, you'll see that we're already nearly a year into the pandemic before November 29th of uh, 2020. And we're still seeing at that point in the, what is that, lavender, fuchsia um, colored uh, bars, the, the original strain that uh, was first detected in, in China, and then uh, the first US case you may recall was in a Washington state resident uh, diagnosed on the 20th of January of 2020. And, um, and it was still with us uh, pretty much for all of 2020. And then you see uh, the kind of salmon colored bars, I guess, uh, coming in, that's the Epsilon strain, uh, B1 427 and 429 at the time, we were calling it the California strain. Uh, and then the uh, blue bars come in and, and become prevalent. Uh, that's the B117 strain, um, subsequently dubbed alpha. And near the end of June, basically on the, on the 30th of June, we, we hit a nadir and, and we all but declared victory over COVID-19. And, and, and of course, that's the kiss of death when you do that. And, um, and then uh, just in time for Delta to hit, and Delta is shown in these yellow boxes. And it was basically a Delta story from, you know, roughly the 1st of July all the way into mid-December uh, when Omicron came on, uh, you know, like gangbusters and uh, shown in the red boxes here. Um, by the week of uh, December 19th to 25th, uh, Omicron had had really uh, taken over and it's it's been essentially all Omicron since then. Uh, now, this just looks at the last six weeks of uh, reported cases and shown in the orange uh, bars are uh, cases reported by day. And uh, you'll notice the periodicity, the little um, uh, dips over the weekend, right, when fewer cases are getting reported to us, uh, maybe fewer people getting tested over the weekend. But um, because of these dips, we draw this uh, seven-day rolling average. So in any seven-day period, there's a Saturday and a Sunday, right? So it kind of smooths everything out. And uh, you can see how uh, the seven-day rolling average has been coming down for the past six weeks. So that seven-day rolling average peaked on the 21st of January at 8,212 cases. Uh, and um, the most recent uh, that we have here down on um, the 3rd of March is 651 cases. So that's a 92% drop 
in uh, just over six weeks in the in the seven day rolling average of cases. Now, COVID-19 has not uh, hit all of our uh, racial and ethnic groups uh, equally. Um, this shows relative rates of COVID-19 by calendar quarter for the various uh, racial and ethnic groups. Relative to what? Uh, relative to the rate among whites, which, which is uh, set at one uh, down here uh, on the black line. So you can see that um, early on, uh, some of these racial and ethnic groups, uh, in particular in the early stages, had just whopping rates, you know, five times uh, over here, nearly 20 times the rate among whites. Uh, uh, among the Pacific Islander population, and and uh, I don't know if you were uh, recalling, but um, you know we had we had big outbreaks among uh, those populations, and uh, subsequently we made strenuous attempts to uh, get vaccine into them when um, when vaccine became available. But uh, most of the uh, non-white racial and ethnic groups uh, have had higher case rates than whites. I will say that Asians uh, in the gray boxes here have tended to trend pretty close and um, in recent months uh, have been uh, lower than whites. Um, and then you have your multiracial group. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a numerator problem, but um, but there you have it. And, and you know, happily, uh, they have trended uh, toward um, toward parity with the uh, white uh, rates among whites as the pandemic proceeded. Uh, this shows you a similar analysis among uh, comparing Hispanics to non-Hispanics with the referent uh, 1.0 set to um, the non-Hispanic rate. And once again, uh, whopping rates, you know, five fold uh, the rate among non-Hispanics, among Hispanics early in the pandemic. And again, you may recall that uh, we had these uh, big outbreaks among uh, uh, in food processing facilities that employed uh, preponderantly uh, Hispanic workers in um, Lincoln County and out in uh, uh, by Boardman and in Pendleton, and, and those were sort of driving the rates, big big rates in multi-generational households and such. And um, happily, those have also come down and and maybe even a little bit below. Uh, I will say this this um, the last quarter for which we have. Uh, analyze these is uh, the last quarter of 2021. I will say that during Omicron, uh, the, the uh, relative rate among Hispanics is ticked up again over that of um, non-Hispanics. This shows you um, COVID-19 among Oregon children in cases per 100,000. So uh, the dark blue line um, that runs at the top is the 12 to 17 year olds and below them is the five to 11 year olds and, and uh, uh, bringing up the rear is uh, zero to four year olds. So um, kids do get infected. Uh, they transmit the infection to others. There, there was some question about that very early in the pandemic, uh, but there's no doubt about it now. They're, they're, they're as capable of transmitting the infection as adults are. Um, 122,425 cases among children, um, that is Oregonians under 18 years of age, uh, that makes up about 18% of all our reported cases and kids account for 20 to 21% of Oregon's population. So rates a little bit, reported rates a little bit lower. I, I wouldn't put any money on, uh, on, on actual infection rates though, because uh, as you know, disease in that age cohort tends to be milder and, and they're probably less likely to show up for a test and, and get tested. Um, 722 kids have been hospitalized. Um, that's about one out of every 1200 kids in the state of Oregon. Uh, and this shows you uh, daily hospital admissions by age group. Uh, the top line is um, those over 70 years of age, and you can see that overwhelmingly uh, they have had the highest uh, incidence. 
in um, in in terms of hospitalizations and. Uh, 70 plus year olds make up a little over 12% of Oregon's population, but they've accounted for, uh, I can't remember the number, I think around 35% of uh, hospital admissions. Oh, and I wanted to point out uh, this bottom line here is um, the uh, less than 18 years of age. So this is kids and you can see it was very low, but um, uh, and these are recent uh, recent weeks, but as Omicron really hit, they became a larger percentage of the popular of the uh, hospital uh, burden, um, and then kind of you know dwindled along with the rest of them. <clears throat> so this is all the cases of COVID-19 in Oregon by uh, age and hospitalization status, with the blue uh, at the bottom showing the hospitalized cases. I mentioned earlier that. Uh, about 4% of all uh, cases have been hospitalized. That number, by the way, was was considerably larger before Omicron. Uh, Omicron has had lower hospitalization rates and dropped the overall number down. Um, and you can see that hospitalization pretty uncommon in kids. Uh, I, I will say that uh, 20 somethings uh, have had the highest uh, case count and the highest incidence um, among uh, uh, around a quarter of 20 somethings have um, been reported to us as, as having been infected. So they have the, the highest risk probably because, you know, they're they're in the workforce and, and they're socializing maybe more than people my age, but uh, but there it is. Um, but when you look at hospitalization rates, uh, they peak in the 60 and 70 age group. Of course, the 80, 80 year olds are a lot smaller percentage of the population, only about 4% of Oregonians are over 80 years of age. Uh, but when they get infected, they have a high risk of being hospitalized. 24% of the cases among 80-year-olds have been, 80-plus-year-olds um, have been hospitalized cases. So this, uh, this graph shows um, what's going on in the hospitals with COVID-19. So this is uh, hospital bed occupancy. Um, so not new hospitalizations because, you know, once somebody is hospitalized with COVID, they may be in there for two days, but they may be in there for six weeks. And, um, and they're, they're, uh, this, is, this is us looking at the pressure on our hospitals. And, um, you know, with, uh, and you can see the various waves coming through here. Uh, you know, we peaked um, in the spring of 2021 at 351, and then here's our July uh, nadir. And uh, with the Delta wave, we had our highest peak at 1178 uh, COVID positive patients in hospital on the same date on the 1st of September. Uh, and then case counts started declining. And similarly, if you look at the patients in ICU, that number is um, uh, 351, I believe, uh, on the same date uh, we're, we're in ICU. Uh, that's um, basically more than half of available ICU beds in Oregon were occupied by COVID positive patients back on the 1st of September. Uh, and then things started to come down and we're feeling pretty good uh, until uh, Omicron hit. And then uh, we started to go up again and, and our peak uh, hospital census was 1130 on uh, the 27th of January. And uh, the most recent date, uh, the case counts, uh, hospital beds occupied by COVID positive patients have just been plummeting along with the case rates. And uh, the number that we had yesterday was 304 uh, patients in hospital and the number in ICU was 52. Um, so we're actually below our December nadir. We're not yet uh, down to the levels that we were in, in um, uh, before the Delta peak, but uh, uh, it's, it's nice to see the case counts coming down. 
this is the same graph only showing you what percentage of hospitalized patients are in the ICU in the green. And um, with Omicron, uh, we watched that percent drop uh, pretty rapidly from around uh, hovering around 20 to 23 percent uh, down to the 13 to 16 percent range. And, uh, you know, we're at about 15 percent right now. So this shows you the hospitalizations by region. Uh, the, the map on the right will, will uh, sort of give you the color coding of the various regions. Region one is in the blue at the top. And of course, you know, region one up here uh, accounts for pretty close to half of Oregon's population. So unsurprisingly, they've got the highest number of uh, hospitalized patients. In addition, you know, patients get transferred to region one when they are um, uh, desperately ill and, and need uh, uh, ECMO, for example. Um, but uh, a lot of these other areas of the state uh, don't have the hospital capacity that Region 1 has. And I will say that Region 2, uh, Salem, Corvallis, Albany, and going out to uh, the coast um, has been really hard hit. And they were, uh, Salem Hospital at, at one point was running at like 122% of uh, capacity. Um, there were hospitals that were uh, throwing up medical wards in their gift shop, you know, uh, never mind opening up other wards, but they were opening up, you know, even non-normal patient uh, areas uh, to care for patients. Region 5 was also very hard hit. Uh, they, they've uh, gotten a lot of relief lately uh, down in, uh, you know, Medford, uh, Rogue Valley, um, Providence Hospital down there, obviously, uh, were hit very hard. And Region 7 has kind of, uh, they've had a slower decline and, and they've been um, uh, hovering around, you know, high 90% uh, census for, for a long time now. And as the COVID positive patients are, are leaving the hospital, they're getting filled up with sort of back pressure, you know, from surgeries that were postponed and whatnot. And, and so a lot of these hospitals, uh, last I heard last week, Salem Hospital was still over 100% capacity despite the salutary decline in uh, COVID hospitalizations. Um, so as of uh, what yesterday, 7% uh, of our staffed adult acute care beds, uh, 4,297 staffed beds have been reported to our HOSCAP system by the hospital. So they're reporting daily, how many staffed beds do you have? How many uh, are filled with COVID patients? How many beds are available? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And 7% uh, of the staffed beds and 8% of the occupied beds uh, had COVID positive patients. I will note that um, this 4,297 number used to be bigger. So um, I noted uh, earlier in the pandemic, uh, a, a drop in um, uh, staffed beds. And, and I don't know to what degree that was um, uh, nurses um, quitting, retiring, uh, leaving because of mandates um, or, uh, or just out with COVID. But but there was a, a, around a five percent drop in in the available in, in the bed availability in the state of Oregon. ICU beds, eight percent of staffed uh, beds, and nine percent of occupied beds. Uh, this situation is the best I've seen it in in uh, at least a couple of months with uh, 106 ICU beds out of 667 staffed beds uh, available statewide. This shows you all the COVID-19 deaths in Oregon by age, 6,621 uh, as of our last weekly report, which was um, through data through the 27th of February. 40% uh, of all the deaths have been in those 80 years of age and older. Uh, remember I said they're about 4.2% of Oregon's population and they've got 41% uh, of, of the deaths. Another 24% among uh, uh, 70 somethings 
and uh, another 19% among 60-something. So uh, taken together, uh, all of those amount to, uh, what is that, uh, around 80% of um, all of the deaths in Oregon, uh, around five-sixths have been in 60 years of age and older. Now, we have a pretty loose definition for COVID-19 associated deaths, and I'm, I'm pretty careful to say COVID-19 associated. Um, you know, it, it, we're state bureaucrats, right? So we're not in the hospitals assessing whether a given patient, uh, whether COVID was what killed him or whether, you know, he, he just died with a, with an incidental finding of um, COVID-19. So we tend to adopt pretty crude definitions and uh, of, of death. Uh, death within so many days of a diagnosis, and we consider it to be associated with COVID. Um, I will say that uh, I think this is easily defensible when you have a rare disease. So meningococcal disease, we have a handful of cases in the state of Oregon, and and if somebody dies within a you know 30-day period of time of their diagnosis of meningococcal disease, uh, it's reasonable to assume that the meninge played some role in that death. But with COVID-19 becoming so common and there being so many mild cases, it's reasonable to ask the question, you know, how many of those patients are dying with COVID and how many are dying uh, um, uh, of COVID? And we don't make the distinction when we report COVID-19 associated deaths. And I'm, I'm, I, I try to be careful about saying that. Nevertheless, when you look at all deaths in Oregon uh, shown in the orange line, uh, we have basically been, uh, since the start of the pandemic, well above the uh, five-year average of uh, deaths. This is deaths by week uh, from 2015 to 2019. Um, and uh, for example, totaling uh, last year, uh, 2021, we had 44,664 total deaths in the state of Oregon uh, as compared to a you know prior five-year average of 36,347. So uh, that is... Um, I think a 20 something percent increase over uh, the previous year's total. Uh, these these all death counts parallel pretty well the COVID-19 associated death counts uh, just qualitatively. But, um, but if you add the COVID-19 deaths to the previous deaths, they don't come to equal uh, the total death count. Uh, so last year we reported 3,516 COVID deaths and, and add that to the 36,000 and you don't get 44,000. So our death rates are up even higher than what is reported as a COVID-19 associated death. And this is similar to the situation with influenza where the number of deaths we estimate from influenza greatly exceed. It, it's, we, don't even, we don't even count the ones where... Um, we don't even count them that way. We, we, we generate estimates of, of how, does, how do deaths change when influenza is circulating. CDC has this uh, big algorithm that they use to estimate uh, influenza-associated deaths. So I, I suspect that there's a substantial number of people who had COVID-19. Um, uh, then a couple of weeks later, they're starting to get the you know inflammatory sequelae in the lungs, and they're coming in for medical care, and they they may not be finding the COVID-19 that was there that that set the process in motion. So um, I, I still think that a, a substantial proportion, you know, if if not at least the number, you know, maybe more than the number that we're reporting as COVID-19 associated, uh, are are attributable to um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, how are we doing with vaccination? Um, 
you can see the various waves of vaccine early on in the pandemic. The number who were vaccinated was equaling the number of um, doses administered uh, because one person had every dose. But then when uh, the timing came in 21 days after dose one for people to start getting booster doses, then uh, these two curves uh, diverge. So orange is people vaccinated and blue is doses administered. Um, and here we're going into February and you can see the little peaks as successively younger age groups became eligible for vaccination. Uh, and then in the summer, remember, we practically declared it over. There's this big nadir uh, and then um, we start to uh, administer more doses, booster doses. We add the five to 11 year age group uh, and, you, and you get these um, additional uh, peaks. But um, vaccination has been declining for some time now and we're down to uh, you know, a little over 3000 doses administered per day. This is a five day, a seven day running average, a little over 3000 doses and, and, and little under 600 uh, new persons uh, getting a dose of vaccine daily. Uh, so not exactly what we want to see, but uh, there it is. Um, so how are we doing with vaccination rates? This is just adults in Oregon, and 83% of Oregon adults have had uh, at least one dose of vaccine, 75%. So three quarters of adults have had a complete series, and about 44% have had the booster dose. If you look at all ages, and, and all ages, of course, is more pertinent when you're talking about population level immunity, uh, you know, kid, kids are vaccinated less. And of course, you have the zero to five age group that isn't even eligible for vaccination yet. So when you add all of those into the denominator, uh, the total uh, one dose vaccination rate falls to 74%. About two thirds of all Oregonians have had a complete series and a little over a third have been boosted. Uh, vaccination rates vary by uh, race and ethnicity. Um, the green line shows you the native uh, Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, and I mentioned earlier, uh, their whopping rates near the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we made a lot of efforts to, to vaccinate and you know, basically uh, they're all vaccinated. So this was uh, a really uh, happy, happy uh, outcome. Um, among Asians, the vaccination rate is really high. This is single dose, by the way, just for ease of presentation. Uh, whites about 81%. Uh, blacks trail at about uh, 78%, and um, the lowest rates are still among uh, American Indian, Alaska Natives, and um, Hispanics. So only around two-thirds have had a single dose. So we uh, have have really hoped and have been trying uh, with only limited success to um, uh, bring up vaccination rates in some of these racial and ethnic minorities. Um, does the vaccine uh, work? Um, well, if you look at rates of disease in cases per 100,000 among unvaccinated, vaccinated, and boosted, uh, you'll see that the, the rates are highest among unvaccinated. That is still the case, even though um, immunity uh, against Omicron is not as good as immunity against Delta, and the immunity generated by vaccine against Omicron does decline faster than we'd like to see. Uh, but we, we still know that uh, the cases that are still occurring are disproportionately among the unvaccinated. Uh, blue line shows vaccinated, gray line at the lowest rate shows uh, boosted. 
Uh, vaccination rates vary considerably across the state, uh, unsurprisingly, all the way from, uh, this is single dose vaccination rates, 45.8% uh, down here in Lake County. Uh, they're the lowest county. And uh, the winner is Hood River County at 89.3% up here. But the Portland metro area does, does uh, pretty well, uh, as does uh, Benton County and Lincoln County. And Deschutes County, I should say. So Bend is here, uh, nice high rate there. Now, uh, Dr. Peter Graben at OHSU has been generating uh, forecasts for us uh, uh, since nearly the start of the pandemic, as far back as I can remember anyway. And he generates this model herd chart where he estimates what percentage of people are susceptible, what percent are, are walking around infected right now, and what percent are recovered and sort of removed from the susceptible population. Um, the uh, the susceptible population really started to decline when the first vaccines came out uh, and, and people started getting their, their second dose of vaccine and, and, and we estimated uh, this many had, um, the, the susceptibility had fallen. Uh, and by the way, the, he's, he's looking at susceptibility to hospitalization, not, not to any infection, but to hospitalization, because that's, that's primarily what uh, he's been projecting. Uh, and then Omicron comes along and we realize that there's a lot of people who are fully vaccinated and they don't seem to be, you know, as protected as they were. So boom, uh, the, the percent susceptible jumps way up again. And then look what's happening here. Uh, the, the, the number susceptible is just plummeting here. And it ain't plummeting because we're getting so many more vaccines into people. Uh, it's plummeting because people are getting infected. At one point, the estimate was 8% of Oregonians were walking around with COVID-19. So, you know, you can imagine if you had a, an auditorium, a, a wedding reception, a church, you know, you name it, with, with 100 people in it, and, and they're all milling about and the ventilation isn't very good and eight of them got COVID-19, it, it's easy to see how pretty much anybody who's susceptible in that crowd is, is, has a pretty good chance of coming down with it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we're right now, we're, we're down in this range. And um, so the, the estimate, uh, this line shows uh, the date last week when um, he generated the model. Uh, oh, this shouldn't say 2-2, two, two. Uh, this should say 3-3, three, three, I think. Um, Susceptible, 13% of Oregonians are estimated to be susceptible, 4% uh, infected as of last week, and 83% recovered and, and removed. So here's Dr. Gavin's uh, hospital census forecast. And uh, on the left, I'm not going to go into this, but the, the, these are his assumptions. For example, are not the, um, the basic reproductive rate, 20% more infectious than Delta, immune escape, 60%. So these, these are his uh, estimates. Hospitalization is lower, only 23% of Delta. Um, and he, he adjusts these as, as new data come in. So here's our peak, 1,130 patients in hospital on January 27th, and here's where we're coming down, and here uh, is where he is projecting us to be at various states. I will say, you know, he has been remarkably accurate. I mean, sort of scary accurate as far as his projections. But when Omicron came came along, that really threw a wrench into everything. And um, he's had to readjust his estimates. And, and he had projected um, a higher peak with Omicron and taking a longer time to come down off of the peak. And when we first came out and said, we're dropping the mask mandate on the 31st of March, that was based on projections that said we'll be down to 400 cases. So roughly our December post-Delta nadir 
which was 338 in hospital on December 21st. On the solstice, we hit our nadir um, of, of hospitalized patients. So we said when we get down below 400, we think it'll be okay to take the mask off. And he, he projected that date to be March 27th. And since then, we keep beating every every uh, projection. So this is his last Thursday's projection that we would hit 500 on March 3rd, 400 on the 12th, and 300 on March 21st. Well, yesterday we were at 304. So I'm happy to say that we're uh, we're continuing to uh, to uh, beat beat the projections. So again, he's he's done a fabulous job, but I think uh, I think that the number of people infected is just exceeding all expectations, and uh, and and. So not many people susceptible left. Uh, here are his fatalities uh, forecasts, and you know you can see the delta wave really was the peak in fatalities, and then uh, it's down here where you really start to see the omicron um, omicron fatality rates. Fortunately, lower than the much lower than the delta peak. Uh, this is a busy slide. Um, I don't know if you all get the slides or if they're available to you, but uh, you know, I kind of don't want to go through all of this right now, but um, uh, describing what has been approved, which is basically just uh, Pfizer and Moderna uh, for um, uh, these age groups and for the primary series, and then pretty much everything else is under emergency use authorization. Um, I'm understanding that Novavax is uh, submitting or has submitted for uh, emergency use authorizations, and they they actually published data uh, many months ago in the New England Journal showing uh, two-dose vaccine efficacy of their um, adjuvanted spike protein, recombinant spike protein vaccine at you know 80 to 90 percent, uh, so looking looking pretty good. But um, uh, I don't know when uh, we can expect their uh, emergency use authorization to be in. And this is another thing uh, that, that's a, a handy uh, slide to look at if you're wondering about vaccination schedule for moderately or severely immunocompromised. But um, uh, remember, everybody gets the, the primary series, which for Janssen is, is one dose, but Pfizer and Moderna is two doses at, at different intervals. And then um, the thir a third dose is recommended for um, uh, immunocompromised people uh, at least uh, 28 days after the second dose. And recently, uh, FDA authorized an additional dose of vaccine after your first dose, after your dose of Janssen for um, immunocompromised people. Uh, but this should be a, uh, a, an mRNA vaccine uh, because of the risk of uh, thrombosis with thrombocytopenic syndrome with uh, Janssen vaccine uh, and because uh, its effectiveness has been a little bit less. So um, an mRNA additional dose for Janssen vaccine recipients and then uh, booster doses uh, at least um, well, for the mRNA vaccines, at least three months after the third dose, and if you started with Janssen, at least uh, two months after your additional dose. Um, you know, one of the things, the thing that we were probably most worried about when uh, considering recommending vaccination for uh, uh, adolescents and for uh, young adults was the risk of myocarditis that has definitely been shown to be a side effect with the mRNA vaccines. And um, these data were presented by a CDC staffer at the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting on the 4th of February. And basically, if, if you've been following it, 
the, the, the elevated risk is almost exclusively, not quite, but almost exclusively limited to males and, and young adult males. Uh, well, actually it goes down into the, into the teens as well um, with the second dose with the second dose of the vaccine. So um, the risk among males 18 to 39 years is uh, 67 and a half cases of myocarditis with Moderna uh, per million doses administered. So about one out of every 16,000 uh, recipients is uh, can expect to have this uh, case of myocarditis. And a little bit lower with Pfizer uh, BioNTech, probably because the dose of uh, mRNA is lower. With Moderna, remember, it's 100 micrograms, and with Pfizer, it's 30 micrograms. So that that may account for the um, the the difference in in rates. Um, females uh, have very low risk, and so when when you take you know both sexes together, you're basically cutting the male rate in half. Uh, so so that accounts for this. But I think the crucial thing is what you know what should males get. And um, when they were considering, you know, whether to, to recommend it or, or whether to keep recommending it in, in these age groups um, and, and, and for males, uh, they looked at, well, what's the likelihood that you're going to get hospitalized with COVID compared to the likelihood that you're going to get hospitalized with myocarditis? And I will say that the, the, these myocardities uh, have been uh, not very severe. Uh, they've often been an elevated troponin, some chest pain, which gets you admitted to hospital an elevated troponin or two, and then, you know, it, it goes away and they're better and they go home after two days. Um, uh, but so they, look, they looked at hospitalizations from COVID-19 among these age groups and compared them to uh, likelihood of uh, contracting a case of myocarditis. And you can see that on the left side, the number of hospitalizations estimated to be prevented among uh, males uh, 18 to 39 uh, with a million doses of vaccine given, 1,903 hospitalizations for COVID-19 prevented and um, only 68 cases only, 68 cases of myocarditis. Uh, and with um, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, the numbers, of course, look a little bit better uh, because um, because uh, it has a lower incidence of myocarditis. So, uh, you know, they, they continue to say that um, that uh, you're better off with the vaccine than you were without it. I will note that um, the estimates of the hospitalization, of course, are going to vary with the incidence of COVID-19, right? So, um, uh, this was uh, these were generated shortly after the Delta peak, so they were looking at pretty high numbers. I, I suspect that the numbers would be considerably lower on the left side of the graph, but still likely to be um, likely to be greater. And and these are different scales, by the way. Uh, note that you know that 100 is over here, and and here it's 500, you know, thousand out to 2,000. So, um, you know, this is what a 30-fold uh, difference. So. Uh, even with uh, decreased likelihood of hospitalization during Omicron, I, I think we're still likely to be in the uh, better with it than without it. Um, but of course, you know, the, the Janssen vaccine is out there too for males. <clears throat> you may have heard about the, the Omicron cousin BA2. So the original Omicron is, is BA1. Uh, don't ask me how they get these names. Um, but BA2 uh, differs from BA1 by about 40 mutations. It has no S gene target failure, which is you know, some of the PCR tests that they use have three targets on the spike protein gene, the S gene. Uh, and with um, Omicron and with the old alpha, the B117, um, they would see one of one of those uh, would not work 
because of the mutation. So uh, that was called a target failure and um, and it could flag the strain. And so we've been seeing these Omicrons come through and, and they're easy to detect even without, you know, full full blown sequencing. But the BA2 has no S gene target failure. Now, because almost everything we're seeing is Omicron, I think at this point, if, if you don't get an S gene target failure, you can probably figure it's BA2. Uh, how is it important? Well, it is uh, has been found to be more transmissible than the original Omicron, 33% more, uh, based on a uh, study of household attack rates in Denmark. And in Denmark, uh, they, they've had a lot of BA2 and, and they've had a lot of BA1 and um, BA2 eventually became preponderant in Denmark. And so they were able to generate these uh, estimates. Uh, so, and the, the median cycle threshold values are lower in unvaccinated individuals uh, with BA2. Uh, the cycle threshold is how many cycles of PCR have to run before you detect it. So, so the, the fewer cycles that you have to run, the more uh, RNA was in the initial specimen. So a lower, lower CT means more virus. So what they're saying is with BA2, they seem to have more virus because the, the CT values were lower. Um, importantly, the increased transmissibility was not observed for fully vaccinated or boosted individuals. So the vaccine is still um, having some effect. Uh, there is increased immune escape. Uh, there is increased susceptibility of unvaccinated individuals uh, with BA2 compared to BA1. Uh, increased susceptibility of fully vaccinated individuals, increased susceptibility of boosted individuals. Um, but these are all uh, relative terms. Again, you're still better off with the vaccine and the boost than you are without it. WHO has said that the severity appears to be about the same as BA1. So that, that's a good thing. It's not like it causes more severe disease. So is it likely to become an issue here? You know, just as we're coming off of Omicron BA1, are we going to get smacked uh, with uh, BA2. Well, in areas where both BA1 and BA2 were introduced simultaneously or more or less simultaneously, and Denmark's one of them, uh, BA2 took over. It outcompeted BA1. But in areas where there was early BA1 dominance, uh, BA2 did not displace BA1. Uh, why is that? I think it's because B, uh, infection with BA1 gives you significant protection against BA2. So this is a study that, that it only looked at, um, uh, it started 35 days after a BA1 infection, then followed patients for uh, 15 days. And uh, down here are the patients who had been infected with BA1, and down here is an uninfected control cohort and whether they're getting uh, BA2. And you can see that, you know, if you if you had BA1, your risk was very, very low. So a BA1 uh, uh, afforded 95% protection against BA2. So I, I think what goes, and, and we do have BA2 here in Oregon. Last I looked, about 5% of our recent uh, strains were BA2. Um, you know, we're not sequencing all of them. So it's a, you know, it's a tiny sample and everything, but about 5% were BA2. But why doesn't BA2 displace if you've already had BA1? I, I think BA2 is, is arriving late to the party. So, so, so BA1 went through and infected, you know, whopping numbers of people, and then BA2 arrives and it's finding that people already have uh, pretty good immunity against BA2. And so it, it, it's not catching on in those areas. So at this point, I'm, I'm not too worried about BA2. Okay. Enough said about COVID. Let me just run through some uh, the non some non COVID stuff. Uh, 
influenza-like illness in Oregon. Um, this uh, would have been sort of, this is uh, the 2019-2020 season. This would have been sort of a typical season coming down off a peak that occurs around the, the holidays or the new year uh, and then going away. But what happened here is uh, COVID-19 came in and all of a sudden people are running to the doctor and getting tested. And so we had another big peak that I think is, is artifactual, represents more people getting tested rather than um, uh, actually more flu disease. Uh, <clears throat> and then here is what I thought I would never see, uh, which was 2020, 2021. And we basically did not have a flu season last season. Just amazing to me. And then here's 2021-22, uh, and this is a, a very, very low season. And um, we're, we already seem to be coming off it at a 0.7% um, uh, of emergency department visits among our network of Sentinel providers being for influenza-like illness. So we, we seem to be coming down off it. Remains to be seen what happens when we, when we all take the masks off. <laughs> <clears throat> Here's influenza positive tests, again, staying at very low numbers, although a little little blip recently up to 1.5%. Uh, does that portend uh, the, the return of influenza? Uh, we'll see. Uh, we, do, um, we don't have statewide surveillance for influenza. It's not reportable in Oregon, but we do uh, through, through the uh, cooperation of uh, Portland Tri-County Area Hospitals uh, collect hospitalizations for lab-confirmed influenza. And you can see that in these previous seasons, you know, there's a big range anywhere from 466 to 1522. This was a pretty bad H3N2 year. Um, uh, this is how many hospitalizations with influenza we might expect in the Portland area in a, in a given season. Um, 2020 to 2021, three, just unbelievable. And and to date in 2022, actually 8 February, this is, uh, this is I can update this, that, that was, th this is through like last week uh, is five, is still holding at five. So um, amazing. Uh, here's the vaccine. I'm gonna blow through it, two new strains in the vaccine this year. Um, RSV, similar story uh, here in the um, color, sort of lavender colored line uh, is a typical season 2019 to 2020. And then here's 2020 to 2021 on the floor uh, for the entire season. Um, you might have been hearing some rumblings about it surfacing during uh, the summer. It did kind of, it, it is unusual to see any activity here and, and we did. Uh, and then here's where it takes off this season and, and we did have an RSV season in 2021-22, uh, but we're already kind of at the end of it here at a 2.1% uh, uh, PCR test positivity rate last week. What about measles? Um, average of 3.3 cases a year since 93. A big year uh, in uh, 2019 associated with uh, even more cases in Clark County, Washington, across the river. Uh, we've had none in 2020 or 2021. Uh, how about mumps? Uh, we had two cases in 2020 and four cases in 2021. Meningococcal disease, I never in a million years thought I would see it because um, I, I was here back here and I remember this year we had the highest rate in the nation back here. Uh, 2020, zero cases, no cases of meningococcal disease in 2020. Uh, 2021, we have had six. Uh, invasive uh, H flu disease. Now, you know, mostly H flu is reportable because we're interested in type B and seeing whether the vaccine works or whether there's pockets of anything blue on the bottom here. Uh, not, not much type B, 
most of it's non-typable, um, but big decrements in, in 20 and 20 and 2021 compared to sort of more recent years, right? Uh, and here's pertussis, um, over 900 cases in 2012, uh, zero, uh, sorry, four cases in 2021, four cases. So the recurring theme here is that the respiratory diseases practically went away during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I have to believe that all the social distancing and, you know, reduced crowding in restaurants and whatever and masking uh, have had a, a big effect on this. And so we know that these kinds of uh, interventions can can prevent um, not only COVID, but uh, these other diseases, probably these other diseases even more effectively than they present prevent COVID. Whoops. What about um, what about the enteric diseases? Uh, well, we still managed to have 335 cases of salmonella. You would wonder whether you know nobody's going to go to their doctor with diarrhea, but we still had 335 uh, cases uh, last year. Uh, Shigatoxin-producing E. coli, um, you know, sort of maybe a little bit down, but but you know, reasonably comparable to that in uh, recent years. 291 cases last year. And Campylobacteriosis, we actually had our biggest year ever at uh, 1,093 cases reported. So no decrement in the enteric diseases. Um, you know, and, and I would have wondered that we might just because fewer people coming in for testing, maybe, maybe fewer people eating at restaurants and getting, you know, their enteric infections from, from restaurants. Uh, and we did see a big drop in norovirus. But um, but in these bacterial infections, we we didn't see you know all that much of a drop. So I'll uh, end here by reviewing the objectives. The proportion of Oregon's population reported with COVID-19 to date, uh, about 16%, almost 700,000 cases. The age group with the highest incidence is 20-somethings. Uh, whoops. Proportion of uh, Oregon's population that has received a booster dose. 36.9% uh, of the overall population, 44% of adults. Uh, proportion of Oregon's population estimated to remain susceptible, 13, uh, sorry, that should say 13% now. Uh, and the biggest, the category of disease that saw the biggest drops uh, was uh, respiratory diseases. So thanks for your time. I hope I haven't talked too long. <laughs> Questions? Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Cieslak, for a wonderful presentation. And uh, looks like we have a question here in the room and a few online. So fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, curious how you would like me to talk to my neighbors and my friends about the masks coming off and whether they might go back on. Mm -hmm. uh, good question. Um, uh, yeah, part of it depends on how how nervous they are because I've heard you know some people saying, well, we should have taken the masks off a couple of months ago, and other people saying, how can you possibly be taking the masks off right now? So you, you may want to assess where they are on this. But what I would say is the the great majority of people can take the masks off with a lot of confidence. I think um, because. Uh, so many people have been infected that we are getting to the stage where we have really high levels of, of population immunity. And, and it's both vaccination and, and infection, but we do know that infection confers significant immunity. Immunity from, from neither vaccination nor infection is perfect. Uh, we can see breakthroughs after either of those, um, but they're pretty good and they're pretty good, especially in terms of uh, preventing hospitalizations. Um, 
we are telling people if they perceive them, people are going to need to come to an assessment. You know, now that we're taking the mandates off, people are going to need to come to an assessment, conferring with their doctor as necessary about their own risk. You know, are you vaccinated? Are you hanging around uh, situations, you know, in big crowded rooms where you're likely to be infected? Do you have underlying conditions? How old are you? And they're going to need to assess their level of concern. And and if, you know, they still perceive themselves or assess themselves to be at significant risk, uh, by all means, keep wearing a mask, uh, you know, avoid large gatherings, uh, et cetera. But I think the great majority of us can take the masks off and, and, and get back to uh, to where we were, to business as normal. Great, thank you. I'll go to a couple of questions here online. Um, first, we had some comments from our infectious disease specialist, Dr. Push, that I think you largely address with regard to the current BA2. Um, and following up to that, um, a question, are you able to share what the state is expecting in terms of its allocation of EVU shield? Um, in the next weeks to months. How much have you shelled are we going to be uh, allocating? Um, no, I don't have a good handle on that. We have been allocating, I believe, around 600 doses a week. Uh, this is the long-acting um, monoclonal antibody uh, cocktail, actually, that uh, is, is given prophylactically to uh, immunocompromised people. And, uh, you know, we've been distributing it to um, facilities that, that tend to see a lot of patients with organ transplants and and uh, uh, but advising them once they get their doses to you know to give them as they uh, see fit to, to prevent the most disease. Um, I don't have a good handle on how much of that we'll be getting though. I think we've been giving about 600 courses a week though. Great, thank you. And perhaps along that same line, any information about um, treatments available at testing sites as a forthcoming idea test and then treated with your antiviral medication right T testing and treating i no i don't um i i'm not sort of very close to that work and you know obviously we're uh you know encouraging uh, facilities that are capable of testing and then rapidly starting treatment uh to do so you know either with well paxlovid is our sort of first choice and and um, remdesivir is another choice in the outpatient setting and then kind of bringing up the rear is this molnupiravir which uh, can only be given to adults and non-pregnant adults only and um, only has a 30 percent effectiveness rate uh, so we're, we're encouraging uh, facilities to do that but i i don't have a good handle on uh, you know how many there are or where they are Thank you. And any thoughts on the animal reservoir issue and what this may mean to the evolution of further variants dangerous to people? Uh, no, I, I don't have a good handle on the animal reservoir. I don't know to what degree testing has been done. I mean, I have seen reports that, uh, you know, there's been a report, I think, of a dog infected and a, a deer infected, but um, I don't know how common that is and how uh, serious a reservoir those that those will be. Thank you. Challenging questions coming forth here. Like you, you took yeah. all the easy ones. Um, perhaps here's one that you could speak to to help us out a bit with regard to booster vaccines. So a few questions that interrelate here. Um, specifically, who might be eligible for an additional booster, specifically the immunocompromised? And then should children in that 5 to 11 age group be getting a booster at some point? Um, yeah, uh, good good questions. Um, 
Let, let me say that I, I don't see uh, boosters for either of those groups, like uh, a second booster for immunocompromised people or for uh, immunocompetent adults or for kids 5 to 11. I don't really see either of those on, on the horizon right now. Uh, I'm not aware that uh, either FDA or ACIP are considering them very actively. And let me say that um, especially in terms of uh, a booster for people who have already had a booster, you know, sort of going forward, will the booster wane uh, a couple of months from now? Will you need one? Um, we, we don't know where the disease is going, so we don't know whether it will be necessary at all. And if if the disease does come back, will it be with some variant that that is going to be uh, susceptible to the immunity induced by the current vaccine? Will it need to be a different strain, right? And, and I know that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers are working on Omicron-based variants, but will it be Omicron? I mean, we don't even know that. And so I, I really think that there were a long way from, uh, I mean, it, it, it's not on the on the sh on the intermediate horizon, as far as I can tell, for a booster for any of those groups. I I, I could prove to be wrong, but that's the way I see it. Great, thank you. Um, this question, uh, not certain if we will have an answer to this one, um, but a, they note that a study in late 2021 found that mice injected intramuscularly with COVID mRNA did not show heart injury whereas myocarditis was seen in those who received it IV. Um, question as to whether vaccine technique of giving it in the deltoid without um, pullback on the plunger might be causing some IV injection accidentally of the vaccine. Wow, that's that's an interesting uh, prospect. I mean, I, uh, I, I hadn't heard that before. Uh, it does sound at least plausible. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know how you study how you'd study it further because you know maybe maybe you could do a chimpanzee study or something to uh, to look at that more closely. I hadn't heard that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I think we really appreciate your authentic um, coverage for potential risks, maybe small as they are, of the vaccine. All right, thanks so much for this talk. Um, my question is: Do we have data showing that getting vaccinated decreases transmission? Um, I often tell my patients and I know that it decreases risk of hospitalization, but do, do does getting vaccinated decrease transmission risk? Uh, what I would say to that is, is just that because we know getting vaccinated can prevent you from getting infected in the first place, it, it's better at preventing hospitalization, but, but it does prevent you from getting infected in the first place, that if you're not infected, you can't transmit to anybody. So at a minimum, it, it it can reduce transmission by that means. Um, if you get infected despite vaccination, uh, yeah, you can you can you can transmit. I think fairly fairly well, and uh, so it 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 doesn't it doesn't save you. Uh, I, I don't think it reduces transmission uh, significantly in um, in uh, breakthrough cases. Great, thank you. I want to acknowledge we're almost at nine o'clock, but had to end with just one additional question. Um, impressive work to see the vaccination rate among the native Hawaiian Pacific Islander population. Um, and perhaps you could just share anything in terms of successful techniques um, for reaching these vulnerable populations um, that was used in this case. 
Yeah, I, I'm not real close to that work either. I apologize, but I know that they've been working specifically with uh, representatives of of that community and and uh, taking their advice and uh, whatever they were advising. I think turned out to work pretty well. Sorry, that's all I got. That's perfect. Great. We're right at nine o'clock. Thanks so much, everybody, and thank you, Dr. Ciesler. Here, <laughs> I think my colleague Shelly, Dr. Sanders, should have gone off on her.